It has been too long without those engine sounds and our theme tune playing, but Bring Back V10 Series 4 is finally here. We've got all kinds of subjects to get stuck into over the next three months from the V10 era of F1, and we'll even be treating you to a brief detour into the V8 era that followed with one special episode later in the series. I'm your host, Glenn Freeman, and as always, we'll be finishing the series with a couple of episodes where we take your questions on anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. You can submit your questions as always by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, by leaving us a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it. And there are now two new ways you can get in touch with us as well. BringBackV10s must really have made it now because we've got our own email address. So feel free to get in touch by writing to BringBackV10s at therace.com. And as Ed Straw always says over on the Race F1 podcast, don't forget the hyphen in the race. We'll also be taking questions from the race's new members club, which you can find out more about by heading to the race.com forward slash members club. Among the many perks and benefits you can get access to by becoming a member, you will also get early access to ad free versions of new Bring Back V10s episodes and your own dedicated episode where we take questions exclusively from our members. So check out the race.com forward slash members club to find out much more about that. But now let's get on with Series 4, and we're kicking things off by revisiting the rookie season of Fernando Alonso, who made his debut in F1 with plucky Mino Minardi. Joining me for this look back at Alonso's back-of-the-grid heroics are Mark Hughes and Ed Straw. Mark, welcome to another series. You were covering F1 in 2001, so you can have the first go at the opening question. When you think back to Fernando Alonso as an F1 rookie, What's the first thing that comes to mind? Hello, nice to be back for the new series. Uh, at Imola, he'd been absolutely spellbinding to watch in qualifying. I think that was round three that year. And he was bullying this little backmarker car around with such confidence and abandon. And this was in the days of qualifying where you had an hour and you could go out whenever you wanted. And he was just getting more outrageously high wire with it every time, every time through. And as incidentally in the same session was Kimi Raikkonen in the Sauber, also um, in his uh, third race. Fernando eventually dropped it around where Sonoda went off this year, but it'd been such a thrill to watch the pair of these two new boys who you just knew already were going to be central to the sport in the coming years. And I later bumped into Minardi's designer, Gustav Brunner, and we talked about Alonso, and he said, I know how much horsepower the car has, I know how much downforce it has, I know what its drag numbers are, but I have no idea how he did that lap time. It was only 18th place, but it, it should have been faster only than the other Minardi and a, a long way behind the others, but he'd somehow managed to scratch it round ahead of five other cars. And as we'll find out over the course of the next hour or so, uh, Alonso made a habit of that whenever, whenever the car was remotely close to the others at the back of the field. Ed, welcome back for another series. The listeners will be hearing plenty from both of you over the course of the next 12 weeks because Mark has great insight and we can't seem to get rid of Ed. But Ed, you love an F1 backmarker, so what obscure reference is at the forefront of your mind when you think of today's subject? To be honest, I'm just relieved that you finally got around to a Minardi-focused episode four seasons in to bring back V10s. I'm, I'm wondering when the driver that I ranked number one of Minardi drivers in a, a piece I did for the race uh, last year, Pierluigi Martini, is going to get an episode. Alonso is only ranked number three, so the, the only way is up in terms of Minardi episodes. But yeah, I, I, just, I, I like the Minardi theme of this era because it, it was... 
it was always a minnow, but it, it was ever more anachronistic. This uh, this uh, plucky little team that was doing conducting miracles, considering what it was uh, was up against. So, so I think this is a period of Minardi's history that needs to be celebrated a little more. And obviously, se- central to that is Alonso. You're right; it's taken us far too long to do a Minardi episode. Who is number two in that list? Then who else was ahead of Alonso? That's a good question. It might well have been Luca Badoa, a Minardi, a Minardi veteran. Should have had that fourth place at the Nurburgring. A very, very good driver. Often, often maligned because of that uh, two-race stint with Ferrari as a standard in, in 2009. But a proper driver in his own right. The best thing about that is that Ed can't remember who was number two in his own list. But let's get on with 2001. Because in early 2001, Minardi's immediate future in F1 was in serious doubt. And the team didn't have an engine deal by January. Alonso wasn't confirmed at this stage, but was expected to drive for the team. But in January, its priority was finding a buyer. Team boss Giancarlo Minardi said, we're doing everything in our power to come to a solution because time is money and Grand Prix dates don't move. That was pre-pandemic, of course. Alonso said he was waiting on news from Minardi, adding, to be ready in time for the first race, work on the car has to start very soon. At this point, it was expected that Alonso's links with Flavio Briatore could facilitate some sort of buy-in from Mechachrome and therefore a supply of the Renault-based Supertech engines, which Briatore was in control of mark we, we've already talked in in that intro about how how ridiculous minardi's existence was at, at times do you think it was underestimated sometimes just how close to the brink this team came on so many occasions oh absolutely it, it was perilous the, the, the team had been changing owners like fresh laundry for years jim Gian, minardi who you mentioned there uh, was um, still very much part of it but he no longer owned the team um, Gabriel Rumi uh, had taken it over a few years before with Minardi as a sort of figurehead and helping him run it. But Rumi at this time, we, we didn't know it, but Rumi had terminal cancer, and which you know, he knew. He'd originally sold the team to Gaston Mezzacana's sponsors the year, the year before, but that hadn't finalised and, and they didn't wish to continue. So um, Rumi was involved all over again in trying to find another new owner. And... Um, Maybe Giancarlo Minardi had his own preferences for who the new buyers were, uh, but for whatever reason, they, they didn't come through. And it was Paul who pulled off the deal. But yeah, they'd been operating on borrowed time for a while. It was, was absolutely on its last legs. It was becoming harder generally for Italian companies, would-be sponsors, to justify their activities as the tax authorities began to get more involved at that time. And the whole swathe of Italian drivers and sponsors we saw in the 80s and 90s began to dry up. And it's something Minardi had been struggling with for a while. He'd been using the contribution from pay drivers just to keep afloat. And Rumi had been putting his own money in, which he no longer wanted to do, as he wished to leave his family with a healthy inheritance. So this was all going on in the background behind the headlines. And Briatore was the, the player behind the scenes here with his management of Alonso and his Mechachrome links. And also the team principal at um, Benetton or Renault, as it became. And he was trying to get corporate money from Renault to facilitate it. But they probably balked at the idea of the extra expense complication. Um, but Briatore really wanted to blood Alonso in. He'd got this fantastic new prospect of a driver, but who had very little experience. He'd done only a single season of Formula 3000 and not with a top team. He saw him as the Renault team's future, but not yet. So a season with a backmarker team was ideal. So he, he was very much involved behind the scenes in trying to make the um, the study deal happen once once the Mechachrome part of it had uh, fallen through. Yeah, that Renault interest had called by the middle of January, and it was only days later that Paul Stoddart emerged as the leading runner to save the team. Stoddart had been running the European racing team in F3000 at this stage, 
and he bought most of the Tyrrell F1 equipment when that closed at the end of 1998, but Paul had missed out on buying the team itself to British American Tobacco. Stoddart told Autosport around this time, uh, we are looking at it and it's fair to say we are the team's only chance. And the following week, when he flew to Italy for talks, he told Motorsport News, we're in the final stages of negotiations and I'm very hopeful. I missed out on buying Tyrrell, but I hope I won't miss out this time. But Minardi seemed to get a bit twitchy about Stoddart being so chatty with the media before the deal was done. And the team put out a statement in the final week of January saying that while negotiations were underway, any stories suggesting a deal were done were completely inaccurate. That prompted Stoddart to admit that he'd hoped to have it announced by then, but last-minute negotiations were still going on, although he didn't expect any hiccups. Now, Mark, you were in the F1 paddock throughout Paul Stoddart's time in F1. Was, was this a taster of what F1 could expect when Stoddart came in? Because he was a man never shy about sharing his thoughts in public, particularly with the media. Very much so, yeah. He always told it exactly as he saw it. He was a matey Australian, no bullshit kind of guy, but a very shrewd operator as well. There wasn't much politics or diplomacy about Paul. He was just very genuine, very enthusiastic and wanted to give it a go. Uh, lots of people come into the sport wanting to do that, but very few of them survive shark-infested waters of F1. He was, But he was very resourceful, he was very aware, um, but always very down-to-earth. It was easy to imagine him with dirty hands getting stuck in sorting out a car i'm not sure how often that actually happened but he, he was he is that sort of guy um you wouldn't imagine such a thing of say briatori uh, no i think they were cut from from different cloth but the deal for stoddart to take over was made official on the 30th of january with giancarlo minardi staying on as a director minardi said a lot of people did their best to kill off the team and he said he'd knocked on a lot of doors but found them closed he confirmed that he did feel the rumours of Stoddart buying the team did more harm than good, but he said the main thing was that Minardi was still alive and kicking in time for the new season. The team would stay at its Fienza base, where what is now Alpha Tauri still runs from, but in 2001 it would have support from Stoddart's European aviation facilities in the UK, with members of his F3000 team joining the workforce to help get the cars ready for the start of the season. The team would call its 2001 car the PS01, and a deal was done to keep the old Cosworth engines Minardi used in 2000, which were now three years old. Stoddart said his short-term goals were stability and to not finish last in the championship, and then for Minardi to work its way into the midfield over the next five years. He did accept that given the nature of F1, setting long-term targets can result in what he called people making promises they can't keep. So Ed, if we look at those ambitions for the future of Minardi from 2001 without the benefit of hindsight because we know Minardi spent its five years under Stoddart at the back and fighting to survive. Were those targets realistic by then in 2001 with the direction F1 itself was heading in? Well, they were realistic provided Stoddart could get some healthy sponsorship money in and probably a manufacturer to pull that off. So those are two pretty enormous preconditions and obviously they never came to pass. This is a Formula One very much building to a manufacturer peak, an explosion of costs. So even achieving those preconditions for a chance of the kind of success Stoddard talked about it was a really big ask, didn't happen. So that led to Stoddard becoming kind of a, a very loud voice for, for cost control to ensure the sustainability of Formula One. That was kind of where the existential debate about the future of Formula One started to begin in uh, the beginning of the century, and it, it rages to, to this day. But Stoddart was trying to do things the right way. They were upping the amount of in-house work they were doing through that season. So 
there were some building blocks being put in, but as always, it comes down to money. I, I think a Paul Stoddart-led Formula One team with those resources could have had enormous potential, but those resources never appeared. The manufacturer never appeared. Alonso was announced as a Minardi driver in early February, with Flavio Briatore somewhat cautiously declaring if Minardi races this season, then he's racing for them. Alonso was pragmatic when speaking to the Spanish media. He said, I know that it will be very difficult to achieve anything notable this season. I hope people have patience with me because I'll be starting from the back of the grid. That doesn't bother me, though. I'm not going to get worried about results. Stoddart said in an interview with Reuters, I've watched Alonso very closely in Formula 3000 and he is special. It's a one-year deal. Obviously, we would like to get him for longer than that. He's going to surprise quite a few people. Stoddart has since revealed that when Alonso first walked through the doors in Faenza, he promised he could score points for the team. Now, Mark, you gave a little background to Alonso's pre-F1 career uh, earlier and the fact that he only had that one season in F3000. But coming off the back of that, having won a race... How high was his stock when he arrived in F1? Um, to to the, the world at large, he's still quite low profile, but um, within within the industry, if you like, there was already a bit, a bit of a, a building legend around him. He'd got a buzz about him. Um, he'd stepped into an Alfa touring car and blown away all the big-name drivers. There was, there was a buzz about him. He was beginning to show the rest of the, the racing world why. Um, yeah, he'd done this one season of 3000, being totally dominant at Spa with a fantastic performance, but it was all very new. He'd, he'd come straight from Formula Open Nissan, which he dominated, that, but that was his first season of car racing. The F3000 season was only his second season out of karts. The Minardi F1 drive was only his third. It's worth remembering as well that people didn't really look to Spain for rising four-wheel drivers in, in the wider world. That's perhaps a slightly British outlook, but that's, I think, another of the reasons why he wasn't on the, the radar, certainly in the English language press, because you, you look for your two-wheel stars of the future, but not your four-wheeled ones. Alonso really was the, the start of that in the modern era. The caution from Briatore and Alonso seemed pretty well-placed as February rumbled on. Stoddart openly admitted Minardi was in a race against time to get two cars ready for the Australian Grand Prix, but it was also clear the team was hunting for sponsors. Stoddart said, we have a modest budget for this year and I have no fears about funding. We are 75% complete on a budget for the year, but we are still looking for a title sponsor. If we don't get enough sponsorship, I will have to fund it, as painful as that might be. Minardi wouldn't have a spare car to take to Australia and Stoddart said they might even restrict running in practice due to redu reduce the risk of an accident. Driver-wise, Pedro De La Rosa turned down the chance to create an all-Spanish lineup with Alonso thanking Minardi for the interest, but saying, I'm not sure if it's the most interesting offer at the moment, and I'm not going to take the first thing that comes my way. Stoddart was asked if he was looking for a pay driver, and he said, money is a necessary evil in F1, but it would be wrong if I just made money the only motivator. We haven't come this far to waste it all by putting someone in who can't really drive. Gianni Morbidelli and Christian Albers were strongly linked to the seat, and Stoddart even entertained speculation about Johnny Herbert, basically saying if he picked up the phone, uh, he could have the drive. But in the end, Tarso Marquez got the seat alongside Alonso. Stoddart said Marquez fulfills our requirement to have a pair of young drivers, preferably one with F1 experience, with the added benefit that he has driven for Minardi in the past. So Ed, given some of the other names that were being linked to that seat, was Marquez an underwhelming choice for Alonso's teammate? 
yeah, it's fair to say nobody was clamouring for Marquez to get another go in F1. He was an unexpected choice. Even blindsided Marquez himself. He was quite close to a cart deal for 2001, then got a completely unexpected phone call. He even got a modest paycheck for his services, which oddly meant that actually there was a little bit of money connected to Alonso, but there wasn't for Marquez. He was very much there to be the second driver and offer a little bit of experienced help to Alonso. Often he was in a car that wasn't to the same specification. He said when I spoke to him a few years ago about it that it was 30 kilos overweight, his car, at, at times. And he was a handy enough driver, good enough to win an F3000 race, but obviously not even close to a rookie Alonso's uh, level, even if all things had been equal. The year really was about Alonso, and Marquez was the, the hired help, you might say and the 24th best driver in Minardi history. I've checked my list just in case I uh, had forgotten my uh, ranking again. So, uh, yeah, it was very much uh, a kind of plug-in option that that did a job, and I think it also served Stoddart's desire to kind of try and explore the South American market because he quite liked the idea of some Brazilian or South uh, just Argentinian money, for example, coming in. That didn't really work, but I think there weren't many drivers who wanted a Minardi seat, as Pedro de la Rosa proved, so they went for Marquez, who was a functional option. I look forward to hearing a few more mentions of that Minardi list every time we mention another driver who's uh, been in the team at some point. But while Alonso was waiting for the Minardis to be ready so he could shake them down, he drove for Stoddart's European team in a 3000 test, setting the fastest time in the morning at Imola and then third quickest in the afternoon. Stoddart revealed in an interview with Motorsport magazine recently that he and Alonso helped build the Minardi cars in pre-season. Such was the pressure to get them ready for Australia. He said it was a good gesture from Alonso to get to know his team, but he also said Alonso realised that if the car didn't get to Melbourne, he wouldn't have anything to drive. Alonso and Marquez shook down their new car on February the 22nd, and six days later, Minardi held a launch in Australia, where Stoddart proudly declared they were the first team to arrive on site for the first Grand Prix of the year. Stoddart said, for us, the race was to get the cars manufactured in six weeks and three days and get them to Melbourne. And he's since said that when he took over in January, all Minardi had was a wooden model of its 2001 design. At the launch, he added, I've been to hell and back again. I personally was working 20 hours one day and 18 the next. Even if just one of the cars finishes the race on Sunday, then for us, it would be like winning the world championship. And Mark, we know that Stoddart was good at talking up his own achievements and his team's achievements. He, he could be a, an excellent salesman at times. But was it genuinely impressive that Minardi had gone from almost not existing at the end of January to by early March, touching down in Australia with two cars ready to go? It was very impressive. Um, but he studied putting in a lot of preparation even before the sale had gone through. And he, plus, you know, as you mentioned, he already had his own race team, which he effectively merged into Minardi once the deal was done. So there were two engineering bases. So he wasn't starting from scratch and probably with a bit of a help from Renault the, 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 uh, the, at Enstone. So a lot of the work was done on faith and the expectation of getting the deal across the line. But yes, it involved a, an incredibly intense effort from a, a core of a very committed workforce. Um, he also had his own line to freight, airline to freight everything, uh, of course, and he would even pilot the, the 747 himself, although I doubt he did so on this occasion because he would have been too knackered. Yeah, that's an 18 or 20 hour day in itself, isn't it? Just getting there. It's a scary thought. But Alonso made an instant impression in Australia. He was 17th on Friday, ahead of a Jaguar, a Prost, an Arrows, and even Jensen Button's Benetton. Minardi's running was hurt by an ongoing engine problem, which Stoddart said couldn't be fixed for another few races. But he added, we can't stop them blowing up, 
but we've got more to put in if they do. I think we've surprised a few people with how many we've got here will have fresh engines for the race. I guess when your engines are three years old, nobody else is exactly trying to fight you to get them off of Cosworth. But Alonso qualified 19th ahead of Mazzucani's Prost, Bertie's Jaguar, and of course Marquez, who was outside 107% but allowed to start. Alonso lasted a distance in the race, coming home 12th, and Stoddart said there are not words to describe this feeling. Fernando showed what he is capable of, and after his performance, people have stopped asking about the surprise I was promising from him. He has a fantastic career ahead of him. Well, he got that bit right. And Mark, under the circumstances, how good was Alonso's debut weekend? It got a little bit lost, I think, in the whole drama of Minardi getting there at all and, and getting to the finish. But Alonso was faultless. The, the car actually turned out to be quite well balanced, actually, even though it had no grip and no power. But it allowed him to hustle it between the walls. Um, which is what he's so good at. He'll just sort of bully a car into cooperating. Um, and it's quite an intimidating place because it's high speed, quite a lot of it's high speed, but with very solid things to hit. Um, but uh, yeah, Alonso didn't look like a rookie that weekend. He looked like someone totally on top of the car, operating well within his bandwidth. It was clean and fast. There was no, oh my God, moment of revelation. But of all the drivers on the grid that weekend, he probably did one of the best jobs under the circumstances. I suppose his debut might have also got lost a little bit behind the fuss about Kimi Raikkonen and Juan Pablo Montoya, who were also part of the, the, the rookie crop that year. And we've done episodes on, on both of them already. I can't promise we're going to do an Enrique Bernoldi's 2001 episode at any point. But moving on to the second race of the season, Alonso was out-qualified by Marquez next time out in Malaysia because he was jumping between the spare car and his race car in qualifying, but he did beat him in the race. In Brazil, he qualified 19th, ahead of Button's Benetton and Mazzucani's Prost again, and he said that without traffic, he'd have out-qualified Giancarlo Fisichella's Benetton as well. At Imola, as Mark mentioned earlier, he did out-qualify both Benettons to line up 18th, and he crashed out early, saying he had brake problems. He was 18th on the grid again at the Spanish Grand Prix, this time ahead of both Benetton's and De La Rosa, who turned down being his teammate and had now returned to F1 with Jaguar. Alonso finished his home race 13th, beating both Benetton's, and he said, the lap times I was able to put in surprised all of us. For the first time, we were not so far from our rivals, and even if they overtook me, they didn't pull away quickly. Stoddart said he was overjoyed with the performance, calling Alonso outstanding. Now, Ed, I'm sure in the future we will talk in more detail about how bad that 2001 Benetton was at this stage of the year. But even so, did a rookie in an undeveloped Minardi have any business getting ahead of Fissy Keller and Button like this on as many occasions as Alonso did in this part of the year? Yeah, not really. It certainly reflects what a tenacious job Minardi was doing and how good Alonso was right from the start at dragging that performance out of the car. Benetton, in fairness, was always likely to be vulnerable at this stage of the season. It was very much in transition into becoming the Renault Works team. Renault, of course, did own the team at this stage and it wasn't fully renamed until the following year, but it was Renault. They pushed through all sorts of things. The wide-angle V10 engine had a big impact on the car concept. There were reliability problems, desperately underpowered at the start of the year. So it was very much... Uh, we'll take some pain early on and they said early in the season judge us at the end of it so they started off three or four percent off the pace and ended it 1.3 to two percent off the pace in the last few races and on a positive trajectory towards winning so actually when you boil it down Benetton was always likely to start off being one of the teams that was vulnerable especially with Jensen Button having moved from Williams struggling so much in, in qualifying compared to his teammate Fisichella but that said 
there was still not really any excuse for a team like Minardi with a driver like Alonso to be to be doing so well. So I, I look at it as you had a, a team and a, and a driver getting 100% out of their limited potential and probably a, a team at Enstone that was a little bit all at sea and still trying to force things through and do stuff quicker than it, it could do. Short-term pain, long-term gain, which they did do. So actually it, it kind of adds up that that would be a vulnerable team. Alonso also found his voice during this weekend, complaining that none of the other drivers respected Minardi in qualifying. He said, it's difficult to do a clear lap because we can't overtake anybody. You see a Minardi in the mirror, you try to push a little bit more so you can have a clear lap without a Minardi in front. I hope that people have a little more respect for us in the next races. His complaints didn't get much sympathy from Eddie Irvine, who said, they are so slow, they might as well not be here. I can understand their frustration, but that's Minardi's job. It's up to them to raise their game. Ed, we we know now the kind of forthright personality Alonso can be, but was this bold from a newcomer at the back of the grid to be willing to speak out effectively against the entire field? And perhaps the first sign that we saw of the kind of man Alonso would be out of the car as well. It shows he never lacked for confidence. Even after that first <laughs> qualifying session in Australia, he was talking up how good the lap was and that he could have been a few places higher without some external factors. Well, it was certainly a roar, Alonso. All those characteristics we associate with him, the forthrightness, that confidence, supreme self-belief, all that. He did know how good he was. Some rookies, even very good ones, come into Formula One and while publicly they'll be they'll be confident, I think there are doubts. I don't think Alonso ever had a moment of of, of doubts, even as a nineteen year old, justifiably so. And there were hints of him being willing to be very forthright with the team at that stage as well. So it's absolutely the prototype of the Alonso that we've come to know so well over the, the past two decades. He did arrive in Formula One close to fully formed as a driver and a, and a person. Obviously, he's evolved a lot. But it's there's a straight line from 2001 Alonso to 2021 Alonso. If you if you looked, it was all that, all those ingredients for better or worse. Mark, did you have did you have many interactions with Fernando in that first season? Did you get a glimpse into what sort of personality he was, or, or did he just seem like a kid because he was he's incredibly young still, wasn't he? He was young, and yeah, we we did uh, get to talk a few times. He was. Um, on the surface, quite shy, which I think he still is, actually, even though he has this reputation for speaking his mind, which he does. Um, he, he, there is a surface shyness there. Um, and that was that was more apparent then as he was just a, just he was very, very young and raw. But the the underlying confidence behind that was never in any doubt. Um, he, he carried himself in a way that, you, you know, it was pretty obvious he, he understood how good he was. Um, yeah, he wasn't. He didn't strike you as a, a difficult character, but you can imagine him getting exactly what he wanted behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's played out over the last two decades, hasn't it? But in early May, Minardi lost its designer Gustav Brunner to Toyota, and if you want to hear all about how badly Stoddart took that news, check out our Toyota 2001 episode where we covered it in great detail. Next time out in Austria, Alonso was 18th again on the grid this time out qualifying both Benetton's and Jean Alesi's Prost, and he quite proudly said, we are again ahead of other cars with more potential than us. By the end of May, Stoddart said Minardi was running ahead of our plan, and some of that heart is due to hard work, and some of it is by the driving of Alonso. He said that was helping with his discussions over an engine deal for 2002, which he felt would help Minardi become a midfield team. 
He also said, I see no reason to slip backwards. But that's what happened over the next few races, as after another star qualifying performance to be 18th on the grid in Monaco, Alonso found him himself struggling to get off the back row through the summer. By the time of the French Grand Prix, Alonso said Minardi had lost something compared with the other teams because it wasn't doing any testing and it hadn't brought any new parts yet. He pointed out that the old engines were down on power, but he felt Minardi could find more time in the chassis. Mark, we, we've laid out quite clearly how under-resourced and under-prepared Minardi was for this season. So was it inevitable that at some point Minardi would start to struggle as the year went on? At, at this point, there was an upgrade coming for Hungary, but while they were waiting for that, it was always going to get more painful, wasn't it? Yes, of course. I mean, this, this was a, a place-holding year, a survival year, and you, you can sense in those comments from Alonso the, the little bit of friction beginning to develop between Paul's cutting his cloth, you know, the, the, accordingly to Alonso's ambition, and um, but there was there was no way the team was going to keep up with the development progress of teams like Benetton, even and even Prost, which was at the time struggling financially, but had its basic core around a team that had enjoyed good investment in the past, so had much better facilities. So, yes, it was it was inevitable them they were going to start off quite far off the pace and fall further behind the pace as, as the year went on. In July, Stoddart told the Independent he couldn't fund the team in 2002, so Minardi needed to find a major sponsor. And it was at this point that rumours of Alex Jung coming in with Malaysian backing first appeared. Stoddart said Marquez was on a race-by-race -race deal and that because he wasn't bringing any money, if the right driver comes along, we will try him out. He added, We are in there competing with Arrows, Benetton and Prost. It's been heartening the way people up and down the pit lane have shown us the utmost respect and congratulated us. If we get a point, it will be like winning, and it will have been worth what I've spent. Ed, those are those are great ambitions, and it was fantastic that Minardi could upset some of these other teams. But is it fair to say that without Alonso in one of the cars, Minardi wouldn't have been upsetting anyone uh, in the early part of the year in the way that they did? Yeah, short of finding another superstar in waiting from somewhere, then. No, you weren't going to be doing it with Gianni Morbidelli, decent a driver as he was. You might not even have done it if they brought back Gabriele Tarquini, but we'll never know that. I would say Alonso's skill set and position in his career was uniquely suited to, to doing well at Minardi. Lots to prove, determined to show how good he was, so he was always motivated to haul a, a, an uncompetitive car to greater heights. And he knew that there was that pathway potentially into a Renault team, so there was always a lot at stake for him. And he's always been a driver capable of extracting a lap time regardless of the car characteristics and balance he's adaptable and reactive in a way that few drivers can can make work he's not a textbook driver and i mean that in a positive way because lesser drivers wouldn't be able to make work the way he does things that's why he is so uh, adaptable so if you need somebody to haul a lap time out of a car regardless of of its balance of its developments direction of where it's where its performance strengths and weaknesses are Alonso is going to be right at the top of your list and he still was there so yeah short of finding some miracle driver el elsewhere that was exactly the driver that uh, Minardi needed it's all uh sometimes it feels a bit George Russell in a Williams doesn't it yeah and I think that's probably one of the reasons why Fernando Alonso is so keen on George Russell remember they did their helmet swap recently and he called him a future world champion and Alonso doesn't 
talk up people for for no reason. He he rates George Russell, and I imagine there's a certain sense of uh, a kinship there, particularly with how the Williams was early on in uh, George Russell's career, when it was probably even less competitive in 2019 than the Minardi. So they are, yeah, both members of the possible future stars in the back of the grid car club. I like that club, and uh, much like with Russell. Uh, at the moment, over the summer in 2001, Alonso's future became a topic of speculation. He was on a five-year contract under the control of Briatore, but there were rumours that Flavio wanted to move him up the grid for 2002, possibly taking some Spanish sponsors to Prost, which, as we mentioned by this point, was on the brink financially. Perhaps unsurprisingly, though, those Prost links had come from reports in the French media, so maybe that was more out of hope than expectation. Alonso was pretty relaxed about his future, saying, I know nothing about it. It's still too early, but I'm optimistic. I think I'm doing a good job at Minardi. The results are not spectacular, but people in Formula One know the value of what I'm doing. I'm not worried about 2002. I'm more concerned about 2003 and four. I know at some point I will go to Renault and I'll have to find places where I can continue to learn to get there well prepared. Now, spoiler alert for our audience, Mark, we know Alonso would end up being Renault test driver in 2002, but do you think there would have been any value in him moving up the grid to race somewhere else that year instead? It wouldn't have hurt, but actually I think the way it happened give Briatore a better way of, of benchmarking where Alonso was was at after his one year of experience. He could come, compare him directly to Trillian Button and it was great for Alonso as well to be able to do that too I, I recall interviewing him in 2003 and he was saying that that direct comparison to those two guys made him very confident he was all but saying I was blowing them away so he was raring to go out the gates in 03 um it, it really the the end the, the result of, of Alonso getting into the Renault was already was already uh, mapped out. It was just a question of timing, um, thanks to you know Briatore being both his manager and the and the team boss of Renault. So it wasn't like some other drivers at that stage in their early careers where the the next move can be the defining one, but the choice is not theirs, and it's dependent upon circumstances. In this case, he he was really pretty much established. His place was safe. It was just a question of timing. And also, I think, given what followed and the number of wrong turns in Alonso's career after 2006, I don't think we should really take issue with the pathway that led him to two world championships. We'll let him keep that one. Minardi's new parts arrived for the Hungarian Grand Prix as planned, and it was a significant enough upgrade to the gearbox and the aerodynamics to be declared a B-spec car. Straight away, Alonso was back into his previously customary 18th on the grid, although he retired from the race with brake problems. But after qualifying, Stoddart was once again singing his praises. He said two drivers drove outstanding laps in qualifying. One was Michael Schumacher and the other Fernando Alonso. The times they set in their respective cars indicate both extracted the maximum possible from the machinery at their disposal. To say the team is pleased would be a gross understatement. If you'd asked me at the beginning of the year where I would have wanted to be at this point, I would never have dreamed of it being this good. Mark, is that comparison to Schumacher at this stage over the top from Stoddart or was Fernando already worthy of such comparisons? I don't think it was over the top at all, no. He was driving at an extraordinary level pretty much every time he got into the car. He was he was making people forget just how far off the pace the car actually was and he was doing things with it the engineers wouldn't have believed and he was just getting better. 
He was at a level, I believe, where if he'd made his debut in a top team rather than a Minardi, he'd have been winning races and fighting for the title immediately, just as Hamilton would later do. Um, one of my gigs at the time, I'd, I was obliged to, to give points to each driver for the performances after each race, a bit like what Ed does now. And at the end of the year, some reader added up the scores, which is not something I'd done. And he, he'd, he'd found that I'd scored Alonso second only to Schumacher and how ridiculous that was. But I stand by it even today. He absolutely was operating at that level pretty much from day one. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you're not too sad that you're not doing those ratings anymore. Ed gets to have all that fun and uh, all the interaction. And we do add it up for him on a more regular basis. So I think the feedback's a bit more regular than it maybe was back then. Yeah, I'll leave that to Ed. But let's get into the real reason that we're here. It's time to talk about that time Nigel Mansell crashed into Fernando Alonso. And yes, you did hear that right. This was in the Minardi two-seater F1 race at Donington, where Mansell and Alonso were on track with Marquez, Alex Ewing and Stoddart himself, and they were carrying passengers. Alonso overtook Mansell into the final chicane at the end of the race, but then his car slowed down and Mansell drove over the top of him. Everyone was okay, fortunately. Mansell called it just one of those hiccups in motor racing, saying it was unfortunate and regrettable, but also noting that he did overtake Fernando in the air. Stoddart won the race, uh, but he did say we'll not be doing that again. Now, Ed, this feels right up your street. I'm sure you've analysed this crash in great detail, so let's hear your, your breakdown of what happened. Yeah, it was gloriously unnecessary, but also brilliant. There was, <laughs> there was even a great detail. If you check out the video you can find online, you can hear Murray Walker's doing circuit commentary, and he misidentifies the other car involved <laughs> as being driven by Alex Young initially, which just adds just that little bit of extra authenticity. I mean, Alonso was well ahead through the corner. It was very This was very much an exhibition event, and he was probably creating a photo opportunity, so he didn't get on the power as you'd normally expect and he was kind of closer to the middle of the track all the cars were kind of together there so I imagine that was probably yeah a plan to get a nice uh, nice shot Mansell just got on the power relatively normal and you know the the, the collision uh, happened I always thought his passenger who was a businessman named Jonathan Frost got great value out of that he paid something like $55,000 at auction for that ride got a great story to tell out of it he probably had to pay double uh, to get that kind of uh, that kind of tale but I'm pleased Nigel Mansell's turned up because I feel like he's a proper bring back V10's staple and as we can't talk about whether Alonso almost went to Arrows with a Porsche engine or one of those things that always comes up, I'm I'm pleased that you get this just weird incongruity of Mance and Alonso having a notionally racing accident. Yeah, it had it had to be included. And uh, Nigel's got his own dedicated episode coming up later in this series. I won't tell you which of his many uh, colourful storylines we're going for this time, but but it's a good one. Alonso's return to Spa one year on from his F3000 victory was not a happy one. He had a massive crash in the warm-up, but after being passed fit to race, his gearbox failed early on and he was therefore unable to take the restart after the race was red flagged for Luciano Berti's massive crash with Eddie Irvine at Blanchimont. Also that weekend, rumours emerged that Alonso could replace Jensen Button at Renault for 2002 and Stoddart said he was waiting for Button to be confirmed as staying on so he could be sure Minardi would get a chance to keep Alonso. But let's move on to a, a couple more stunning Alonso performances to round out the year. At the US Grand Prix, he qualified 17th, and his big scout this time was none other than the BAR of Jacques Villeneuve, which is an unfortunate first mention for Jacques in this series. Alonso felt he could have been another place higher on the grid if he'd not had to take his spare car for his final run, and he said, this result proves I am reaping the fruits of a season which is progressing in a way which is not only good for me, 
but also the whole team. So, Ed, how good was this performance? And try not to dwell on the car that was behind him on the grid too much. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure there's much value in out-qualifying uh, Jacques Villeneuve. Ultimately, VAR were having a horrible weekend. I think Villeneuve's summary on Saturday was the car is sick and we can't cure it. But it, it was a good chance just to put Alonso's name up in lights again because he was ahead of a world champion. It was hugely impressive. There's footage online of this lap. And even by the standards of the cars of the day, it's brilliantly committed. You can... You can generally see how on top of a car a driver is by that entry phase and just the the kind of unhesitating rotation in the entry phase, just proper commitment. And the car as well was pretty good. And the, we talked about the uh, the upgrades that they they brought and they were pushing even at the end of the season. They had a titanium gearbox in the car that wasn't that reliable, but was part of a, a rear end upgrade. They had some rear suspension that was that was working well, which I think was only on Alonso's primary car there. But I think it shows again what team and driver together were able to do. Alonso just grabbed it by the the scruff of a neck of of the neck, and as he often did that season, he was able to pick off people in potentially better machinery when they were underachieving just because he was getting close to the maximum. And Alonso was at it again at the season finale in Japan, qualifying 18th. But what was really impressive this time was that he finished 11th out of 16 cars, beating Heinzheld, Frentzen in a Prost, Olivier Panis in a BAR, and both Arrows drivers. This time after qualifying, he said getting any higher on the grid was impossible, and he said it was the best car setup he'd achieved all season which gave him a perfect balance and allowed him to achieve 100% of what was possible. After the race, it's no surprise to hear that he said, I believe today I've driven my best race of this first season in Formula 1. I pushed to the maximum from the very beginning of the race. I feel delighted that I was able to finish the year with such a fine race outcome. Stoddart called the race a prelude of what is to come from us, and he called Alonso's drive gutsy and outstanding. So, Mark, I'm effectively repeating my last question here, which is uh, how good was this drive? But all I'll add is how significant was it for Alonso to achieve a result like this over a race distance in a Minardi rather than just a, a one-lap special and on qualifying day? Yeah, it was. This was back in the sprint era of racing where you could go flat out in between refueling stints and you, you absolutely had to. And, and when you looked at his times and how relentlessly he was around that most demanding of tracks, both from a driving point of view and physically, it, it was a world-class performance. It was the sort of performance that in a top car would be winning them Grand Prix. It was as simple as that. There were maybe only three or four drivers on the, on the grid who could have done that sort of sustained level on demand. It's actually one of those things that you can't see in the same way this year. We mentioned George Russell earlier and people talk about him qualifying brilliantly on Saturday but not sustaining it on Sunday because today you're much more contained by the kind of controlled managed race pace. You can't do that. Whereas Alonso, perfectly suited to doing that sort of thing, which is why that era is really strong from a showing which drivers really have that magic perspective. It was also a preview of uh, the McLaren Honda years, wasn't it, where he got out of the car pretty much every Sunday and said, I think that was my best drive of the season. But I think this one might have been a bit more genuine. But any hopes Stoddart had of keeping Alonso for 2002 were quickly dashed when after the season, Renault announced he would be their test driver. However, Stoddart has since admitted that Minardi knew Alonso wasn't coming back before that final race in Japan. And in that interview of Motorsport magazine that we mentioned earlier, Stoddart told a story about the Suzuka weekend he said he'd agreed to let Alonso do some glory runs with low fuel in practice as a way to sign off the year. But Alonso's engineer overruled it after what Stoddart called a miscommunication. 
Alonso was furious about this and confronted Stoddart about it, who told him, do your talking in the race. And Paul says, what followed was 53 laps of pure qualifying. I've never seen such a focused drive in all my life. And he added, the bottom line is that every time Fernando drove the PSO1, he got 110% out of it. Let's face it, the car was a dog, but Fernando made it respectable. Is that a fair summary, Ed? Mathematically in- inaccurate, I would say, but it is metaphorically acceptable. We shouldn't underestimate the value to a team like Minardi of a driver like Alonso. You've got somebody who is a, a top liner in the making and operating at a really high level. And if you think about it, if you'd had a, a more mediocre driver lineup, a driver lineup you would say kind of worthy of, of that team's level, think how the perspective, the perception on that team and Paul Stoddart's credibility would have been because rather than talking about these exceptional performances, we'd just be saying, well, they're driving around at the back. What's the point? So any chance of getting some sponsorship in or attracting further good drivers in the future would have would have gone away. So I think Stoddart's absolutely right in in what he was able to to show through having Alonso in the car and through what Alonso could drive out uh, drag out of it. That Suzuka race is just a good example. Most drivers can't live on that edge for a sustained period. Any driver in Formula One can do sort of one mega lap that's your sort of driver's perfect lap is similar kind of level, but it's repeatability and consistency that is the real differentiator. And Alonso, basically, his whole Formula One career has lived on that limit in a way that very, very few drivers in history have been able to. Now, when the test driver deal was announced, Flavio Briatore said, We have followed Fernando's performance very closely this season. He did an excellent job and we therefore decided it was important to integrate him quickly into the Renault F1 programme. He is very young and has a great talent. We chose not to waste him by letting him drive for another team. It's important to save him, to allow him time to prepare for 2003 in the right conditions. Alonso said he was surprised to be going back to Renault so quickly, but he added, It's a good opportunity because between January and March, I will have driven a lot more than I did with Minardi in the whole of last season. The negative side is that I'll be missing out on the competition. I will obviously miss the racing, but this is an important part of my apprenticeship. Given that I'm only 20, not racing shouldn't really be a problem. I've already made the breakthrough to Formula One, and the next step is to improve as a driver with a good car so I can eventually fight for the world championship. And I suppose we should add, uh, for people who didn't follow F1 that closely during this time, being a test driver back then was very different to today. Um, Ed, test drivers were out almost every week at this time of the year, weren't they? So Fernando didn't only get mileage from January to March, he was busy throughout the season. Yeah, there was a lot of work to be done. And in fact, Paul Stoddart set up a test team for Minardi for the first time for that year. So not only do you have a lot of mileage, you also have often your own test group to work with. So that's very, very different. You're almost a, a competing race driver, but without the racing at that time. Whereas now, basically, test driver means you get to drive in two FP1s and spend a lot of time wearing a team shirt. And, and that's about it. So hugely different times. And of course, you've got to do lots of Instagram Q&As to, uh, to earn your crust. But we've already talked earlier about if Alonso could have moved up the grid and raced for another midfield team in 2002. But let's finish on a a final reflection on his 2001. Despite how how limited the car was, Mark, how important was this first year racing with Minardi as part of Alonso's wider development as an F1 driver? Obviously, we know 
the plan worked out because he, he was a race winner by 2003 and a world champion by 2005. But what role did the Minardi season play in his development, do you think? I just it just finished off um what was you know the 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 talent and the way it was uh, his driving was developing that that would have continued which, whichever car you'd put him in but um it just gave him a nice set of circumstances and uh, which the, the the pressure was off but he could still showcase that that ability and it it just gave him a good sort of preparation year for when it got serious which is when he got into a, a, a proper team and in, in the Renault so yeah I think it was um, it it could have played out any number of ways and he would have been fine um, given that Briatore was um, managing him but I think the way the way they did it turned out to be perfect. I think it's also very important in terms of although he was on this trajectory to Renault if he tanked to Minardi they might have thought again it gave him credibility, both among his opponents and with the team that he moved into. It made sure that he was ready to do justice to the 2003 Renault when he jumped into it. Obviously, he got pulled a win that year. So without that, he wouldn't have had all that experience of the race weekend. So even doing it down the back and 17th place on a, on a mega day just gives you that bank of experience and data and made sure that there were no doubts within Renault that Alonso was the horse to back. There was no need to hedge bets. They had the data and the proof. And then once he moved into the test season, obviously they could experience that day to day. So it just built that confidence behind him. I think it's always possible for a driver to to derail themselves, shall we say. The expectations were there, but the Minardi year both sharpened him as a driver, built experience and proved that Briatore and Renault were absolutely on the money to back this guy. Because backing a 19-year-old is a is a big ask and even a 21 22 year old's a big ask but there's a straight line from that Minardi season to the titles in 2005 and 6 yeah i think we can pretty safely say that renault's preparation of alonso worked out quite well over the years that followed and and here we are 20 years later and he's back driving for for what was then renault and we now know as alpine and in his third stint with the team which is remarkable but the alonso renault story is one for another time. So that's it for this episode. Thanks to Ed and for Mark for for joining us to kick off Series 4. Remember to get your questions in for our season finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s or email BringBackV10s at therace.com or submit a question in a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it. And remember, if you want to get early access to ad-free versions of the show, check out therace.com forward slash members club to find out more. And if you sign up to the members club in time, you'll get early access to our next episode where we'll be revisiting how Michael Schumacher ended up signing for Ferrari and the huge impact that had on the F1 driver market for 1996.